I V M. We're Team Splainer. Welcome to an all-new episode of Press Decode, a weekly podcast where we take Splainer's mission to decatter the news one step further. Check out our newsletter for more stories and follow us at Splainer In to keep up with all the fun things we plan for our Splainer fam. So sit back, relax, and don't let the news give you the blues. I'm Sarah, your host for the day, and it's just Vagda and me today. As always, we have three segments for you. In our big story, we're looking at the legal considerations of the recent bulldozer justice model that we've seen across the country. For our food for thought segment, we're talking about the great rising of South Indian flicks across OTT platforms and movies. And then in our final segment, we will be roasting and toasting our fave and least fave items. Okay, so now on to our big story. The beginning of this month was marked by two major Hindu festivals, Ram Navmi and Hanuman Jayanti. However, in certain areas across the country, be it Khargon in Madhya Pradesh, parts of Gujarat, Jahangirpuri in Delhi, Roorki in Uttarakhand, an unfortunate chronology of events unfolded considering the festivals ended up sparking riots. The Hindu religious processions taken in honor of these festivals followed the same pattern of events across all the places that have been mentioned. First, a Hindu religious procession passes by a mosque and Muslim neighborhood. Then both sides accuse each other of throwing the first stone, quite literally. And given the competing testimonies and murky police investigations, it is almost impossible to figure out who or what triggered the confrontations. However, evidence does point to two inarguable facts. One, both Hindus and Muslims resorted to violence. Number two, all clips also point out to the fact that the initial procession included aggressive displays of religiosity that for some reason came to include songs and slogans that heckled Muslims, which are not really part of tradition or <laughs> Definitely not, religion. Yeah. So the next event in the chronology was mass arrests where the majority of those penalized happened to be Muslims. So for example, at least five people booked from Delhi under the Draconian National Security Act or NSA were all Muslim. Now, it isn't to say that the Muslim side did not retaliate. We do have video evidence of one man even firing a gun in Delhi. But that's also not where the story ends. Just when you think, okay, the arrests have happened, however impartial or partial they may have been, you do think that the law will finally run its course. But no, civic officials decided to raise down shops and houses in Muslim neighborhoods in almost all the areas where violence took place with little to no notice period issue. And FII in most of these areas, the prelude to this to the bulldozer drives were open threats like the Madhya Pradesh state home minister saying, which roughly translates to we will turn the houses from where the stones were pelted to a heap of rubble. And to make it worse or to give you more facts, the Delhi demolition drive happened despite a Supreme Court order that issued a temporary stay, but the drive continued to go on for at least one hour after the order. Now, the authorities claim that the demolitions were solely about punishing encroachment, but there is no doubt about which community was the clear target of the drives. So the question that we're left with is whether this punishment by bulldozer is even legal. There is no nothing called punishment by bulldozer. There's nothing like that in the law. Why should it be legal? <laughs> punishment by bulldozer. Literally, it's just, 
it's outrageous so in most cases like everybody has been asking this question as to you know oh, is it legal is it illegal a lot of people have been saying that it's illegal mainly because the move comes out of nowhere that no notices were sent to folks whose you know private properties were encroaching on public property the law requires a notice to be given at the minimum and so mostly the illegality in question comes out of violation of procedure established by law and that's also what supreme court did like that's what they considered in when they looked at jahangirpuri they looked at this when the demolition was on and they imposed that temporary stay which wasn't followed but other than expressing their anger at authorities for not following the order the court did little else to assuage the matter they ordered a status quo and arguments were mostly tied to whether procedures were followed that's it and that's all you need to determine legality on the face of it whether procedures established by law were followed but when you see a pattern a pattern of selective enforcement the communal riot followed by open demands by hindutva leaders to demolish muslim houses and shops followed by the demolitions themselves you're staring at a constitutional question of another kind not just about procedure established by law but of article 15 which is the law that mandates that the state shall not discriminate on grounds of religion among other things and surely encroachment on public property is not limited to places where the riot happened or where muslims live or have businesses so pretty selective enforcement i would say and yet the supreme court dismissed a petition asking for a judicial inquiry into these incidents collectively like there is a pattern to it not just jahangirpuri so what did the court say and i'm quoting here what sort of relief is being prayed for in this petition you want a judicial commission inquiry against these incidents and that too headed by a former chief justice of india do not ask us to pass such directions do you think any former cji would be free for this end quote wow i'm just so surprised and i'm so sorry because i don't think there is a greater example of turning a blind eye to the suffering of a whole section of people why does the court or in this case a former cji not have the time to consider whether the destruction of people's homes and livelihoods was valid it comes down to who has the power and who matters that's it those living on the margin whether social or economic unfortunately matter very little yeah i think to make things worse this story to my mind also has to be seen in the larger context of the rss spending almost a century mobilizing the religious and pseudo religious fanatics who today openly call for genocide against india's muslims oh my god yeah it's not the fringe anymore which is what's concerning yeah and the result of this project is visible in its most insidious form right now right because there was a time when you would at least hope against hope for the rare moment where the constitution or the law would be honored in cases of injustice but now the difference is that the law itself is being weaponized to become a tool of suppression which to my mind is more concerning and scary and the thing is it isn't entirely new when it comes to demolition drives it has been used in other states like uttar pradesh has been doing this for a while but from what i gather a common note in a lot of legislation since 2019 to 20 especially for these kind of legislations is there has been a clear anti-muslim bias so be it the abrogation of article 370 the caa the nrc the discrimination was increasingly evident and now most recently in 2022 three particular incidents scream out to me okay so the so called hijab ban in karnataka this bulldozer model of justice or injustice in various states and also the slowly bubbling issue over loudspeakers and the azan mere 
Muslim existence, especially in the case of the Azan and Hijab, are now being framed in terms of how they are an apparent public nuisance and thus need to be legally stopped. Mm. And with the Hijab case, the saffron shawl was very conveniently clubbed together by the courts. But what the courts didn't take into account was this weird and misleading equivalence that the saffron shawl has the same religious and cultural significance as the hijab. I mean, let's be real. Sometimes I think that the court gets so bogged down in the legality that they refuse to see the pattern. I think the pattern is only going to emerge like in mainstream narrative, like history books, you know, maybe in like 30 years that this had happened. Oh, and it was a pattern. That actually makes some sort of sense, right? In terms of they refuse to go to the big picture. Yeah. Like going back to those shawls, because it really bothered me. <laughs> like I need to say this. Those, those shawls were donned during the hijab protest only to escalate and politicize the issue. Okay. And which is why when the colleges said, you know, leave all like items of religious marking and symbolism at the gate before entering, the men very conveniently and easily could let go of their shaft and shawls. But the Muslim women could not let go of their hijab. And hence, yes. they stayed back at home and lost out on education. And with the demolition drive, it was slightly different considering it was more about taking justice into their own hands and deciding that this absurd form of collective punishment is like acceptable. Like to begin with, you can't punish for one crime which hasn't even been proved by using justice for another crime. And second, you're in, in demolishing these houses, you are taking into account the fact that all the household members are responsible for like one or two people who may have been involved in the rioting. But this is not acceptable at all. Like even if it is one person, let's say he did commit this crime. This oh, is not vigilante yeah. justice. Yeah. What is this? Some crime, some other only punishment you will give. It makes no sense. But to make it worse. <laughs> Same. It's also conveniently ignoring the fact that the religious processions, like I pointed out in the beginning, if they can even be called so, were filmed like there were there are clear videos of people carrying swords, pistols, and chanting evidently provocative slogans. Like, sure, we don't know who threw the first stone if that's all that matters. But there was a lot more to the build-up. And regardless of all of these considerations, an overwhelming number of Muslim houses and shops were raised up. Yes, there were a couple of Hindu houses, not to say that it wasn't. But I think, to my mind at least, it was collateral damage. They weren't the original targets, so to say. They weren't the intended targets. Yeah. And it was very conveniently like, Aray, but these are encroachments which have FII existed for years on end, but are suddenly a wrong that needs to be made right immediately after another turn of events. Yeah, man. And, you know, I see that this applies. I'm thinking of this loudspeaker example. Like when this was happening, there are so many people I know who'd be like, nahi hona chahiye, yaar. it's loud. Nahi hona chahiye. I'm like, nahi hona chahiye, aise firecracker bhi nahi hona chahiye. I mean, then yeah. there are wedding processions also on the road that are very loud and then block the roads. I mean, if, if it is about keeping your religious procession and your celebrations inside your community halls and centers, then there's enough from a majority community, which I come from. Anyway, <laughs> on that note, we come to the end of our first segment. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcasts Network. Podcasts Network. We're Team Splainer and in today's Food for Thought, we're going to South Indian movie industry, which is basically 
payback for dedicating the pod to Punjabi music a few weeks ago. <laughs> We're looking at why and how South Indian movie industry became so big. It's literally breaking box office records. In the last six months, Telugu films Pushpa the Rise and RRR and Kannada film KGF Chapter 2 have the biggest collections at the box office. In 2021, uh, Ernst & Young Fiki report found that in the year's domestic revenues, South Indian films had a collection of 2,400 crore rupees. Hindi films for a scale made only 800 crores. Hollywood movies, 500 crores. What? Represent! (laughs) South Indian films made three times as much money as Hindi films. In 2019, the figures were very different though. Hindi movies in 2019 made 5,200 crore rupees, while South Indian flicks were at 4,000 crore rupees. And it shows not just in the numbers, folks. Open your Instagram. You have definitely not escaped the phenomenon that is Ooh Antava. Of course you haven't. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly, South Indian films are kicking ass. But how and why? Sarah, please begin. On a lighter note, I think this is reparations for all of us being clubbed in as Madrasi. Ah, yes. But more seriously, <laughs> I think this, it was bound to happen, you know. But more seriously, it is true, right? Until very recently, I haven't seen South Indian movies become what is now being called this pan-India movie, right? It was either Hindi or it was South Indian. Now it's a pan-India movie. Except maybe a robo slash Entheran back in 2010. So what changed? It clearly isn't like South Indian flicks are new, but they've somehow now managed to crack this Hindi first audience. And very, very recently, like the numbers showed. KGF Chapter 2 had people outside the South Indian belt wait in line for 6 a.m. shows. What? Dear lads, why? (laughs) That's my first question, why? But beyond this absurdity of willingly sitting for that early a show... What is undeniable is that Bollywood just has to reckon with this mad competition coming to it from the south of India. Bahubali was clearly the first big one in recent times. It came out in 2015 and it made waves in the Hindi market, earning a whopping rupees 50 crore from just the Hindi market. Fun fact, RRR is only one of the three Indian films to make rupees 1000 crore worldwide. The other two, surprise, surprise, include Bahubali, and Dungal. Oh, wow. One Bollywood saving grace. <laughs> oh my god, wow. That's awesome. Right? The numbers are stunning. And here's why they do well, at least in my mind, okay? Like, I'm not looking at the born niche or I don't know if I can call it sober South Indian flicks. Like, the <laughs> great Indian so- kitchen or even a Joji. It is not over the top, okay? Ah, that. <laughs> and I already apologize for my malubais when it comes to all these examples. But the, like, you know, like I'm saying, the the other, the opposition is this over-the-top, big-budget movie like Pushpa, KGF, Bahubali, RRR, the likes of which have their narratives centered around a hyper-masculine hero, which, according to Nandini Ramnath to scroll, and I quote, is a throwback to the narrative simplicity of the 1970s and 1980s Bollywood, in which the moral universe is clearly defined, with the hero's origin story making it explicit that his current circumstances are because of external factors. So here, the hero is just on a righteous mission, okay, to make it, and he's right all the time. Mm-hmm. And to make it even more appealing, they share a larger-than-life story treatment with, like, huge production values. 
and this is clearly working out i mean considering most of these are incredibly successful multi-part movies which was pretty unheard of the entirety of the indian film space in hindi all i can think of is perhaps a houseful a golmal a hira feri but it, it's not the same space mm, it's not and the closest we got to like superheroes of sorts to my mind at least was drona or ravan which good lord i needn't say much more about <laughs> maybe a krish did moderately well but that's about all i can think of like can you think of others no i think krish i don't even know if it was that it did that well i think it was just like a pg13 superhero yes of course <laughs> superhero movies right now are not targeted at children at all that's when it's successful but like south india on the other hand also produced ninnal murli which if you haven't watched it is so enduring it's so lovely 10 on 10 recommend i will watch so, it i will add to my list <laughs> oh god for anyone who hasn't been following us since the beginning of press decode vagda has this this mysterious list that nothing gets struck off that list ever anyway and i think also like these south indian flicks work because they've brought back the machismo and action like i said right of the 1970s and 80s that had been missing from hindi movies for a while like there has been a little bit more of a urban sensibility in hindi and it's not just about the formula it's also coupled with mad conviction and treatment from south indian directors and filmmakers that actually make it work so hmm. anupama chopra actually put this brilliantly she contends that rrr is made up of in her words borderline ridiculous sequences <laughs> considering it had the oversized over the top larger than life action but despite that it's a director like ss rajmouli who has incredible conviction that he is able to execute these sequences with such finesse mm. everyone else might feel ridiculous doing it yeah i think it's you have to believe in like even if you do not that i am calling this crap personally as well moving on swiftly <laughs> on the other hand in comparison bollywood mass movies have become almost predictable really they follow the same sort of narrative so i'm no film critic or filmmaker but like the hindi masala formula is done to death that it just doesn't keep the viewer's attention anymore like honestly i'm guilty as charged i do like a nice masala film once in a while but it just doesn't grab my attention anymore either but a south indian flick because i think it also comes from such a different sensibility for a lot of india while it still continues to tick the main boxes of like a big blockbuster with the hero and all of that it ends up making for a welcome change and hence is now making waves i think yeah i think that's true definitely that kind of narrative is always something that appeals to the mass and yeah. in my opinion now it's way more accessible because regional content on ott is just It's crazy the amount of content that we have. I mean minus Bahubali which was a huge hit before OTT. Being a North Indian growing up in North India, I don't remember many South Indian movies releasing in Delhi theaters in the 90s and 2000s. Actually I don't remember any. 90s I can't I'm not much of a voice for. But in from like 2012ish to 20 2020ish at least pre-pandemic, there were very specific areas in Delhi where you could catch a South Indian movie. So like a good gaon Theater would have it. I know a Janakpuri Satyam would have it. So even if we wanted to watch a Malayalam movie that had released, we'd have to like make our way to specific areas. It wasn't as easily mm. available wherever you were staying. Yeah, so maybe it's there, but it just didn't make as big waves as Bahu Bali did. Obviously, because for sure, 
I mean, if you're a South Indian living in North India, then you might know of these pockets. But otherwise, I didn't know. Yeah. Maybe as a child. And in fact, what we saw was like Hindi remakes of Tamil movies. Say, Satya, Virasat, Nayak. Love Nayak. Or uh, Malayalam language movies. <laughs> Bul Bulaya. And here's one I did not know of till today. Hera Fairy is a Malayalam movie remake. What? Yes, Ramji Rao speaking. It is hilarious. Oh my God. I will go back and watch this. This one is not going to my list. It's on Hotstar, by the way. Just I will watch it's it. It's available right. on OTT. God bless OTT. <laughs> exactly. Right? Now, despite not knowing any of the South Indian languages, I can still watch a Bahubali and enjoy it and watch The Great Indian Kitchen to find my echo chamber all while sitting at home. And that's what is my next point, basically. That streaming business has us very comfortable with subtitles. Which I think theatres did not realize until the K-drama wave. You know, English language movies are still in a language that lots of people understand without the use of subtitles. But K-drama wave, I think, proved that language isn't a barrier at all. Now it's mainstream enough that I see Netflix. I didn't think of this actually, but now that you pointed out, like first couple of Malayalam movies that I remember seeing in theatres, I did, my Malayalam is not great considering I didn't grow up in Kerala. I did have to like ask my parents like, oh, what did like a sentence here or a sentence there? But the first Malu movie that I saw with subtitles was actually a Bangalore days and it got subtitles when it became really popular. But mm. it made it so much more accessible to me and it continues to be one of my favorite movies to date. Yeah. And I feel like the more mainstream things become, they, they don't even give subtitles anymore. They actually dub it. Now Netflix provides like K-dramas in Hindi and English audio also. Great for a yeah. lot of people, I think. And that's true of South Indian movies too. Like if you see, you, you're seeing dubbed versions go crazy popular in the Hindi belt. West and North Indian states like Maharashtra, UP and Delhi account for 75% of viewership for dubbed South Indian films. 75%. Wow. Yeah. And everyone other than Netflix has come to this realization about regional Indian content. <laughs> Disney Plus, oh, Hotstar no. and Prime Video are doubling down on regional content. While Netflix bought rights to 9 Telugu films, Prime Video bought 40. I think we have a reason for your failure, Netflix. <laughs> they made one Minal Murli and said, Chalo, we're done. Oh, my okay. representation. <laughs> but yeah, I think on that note, we come to the end of this segment. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. network it's time for our final segment this week roast or toast and we have our go ahead Sarah. i once again have a least favorite item as if anyone is surprised at this point but towards the end of last week the real life version of the dystopian show Lela, <laughs> it's not we won't take down netflix it's a netflix show <laughs> was seen when a publication called the Aryavat Express was being distributed on trains, specifically the Shatabdi Express from Bangalore to Chennai. It's glorious headlines, you may ask. UN should label Aurangzeb as perpetrator of Holocaust like Hitler. Yeah, perfect fodder to make WhatsApp hate groups oh so proud. And the railway authorities, after it was flagged on Twitter, insisted it is unauthorized and that it was slipped into approved newspapers as an insert. But the passenger who tweeted about the publication denies this and says it was already available when they reached their seats. Yeah, somehow every day is worse than the last. 
Okay, at least it's not as bad as last time. What was truly my favorite, most favorite thing on the internet this week was the memes that followed Elon Musk's decision to buy Twitter. Oh my God! Please go and see all the thousand memes on it. Some guy asked him to buy the football club Manchester United next. <laughs> Others posted photos of him adding Amazon to his cart. It was just a great, great time to be on the internet. I think my favorite was koi you know get him to buy IRCTC maybe it'll work better. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I so love yes that. please <laughs> I do want to book train tickets more easily. Yes. IRCTC actually congratulates you after you're done booking your train ticket and I think it's Valid very much so due. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a bloody mission only. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> That was our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us on Press Decode. You can catch us every Thursday on the IVM Podcast Network. And guys, please remember, don't let the news give you the blues.